This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Donald Trump has a challenger for the Republican presidential nomination. Former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley jumps into the race. What does she have to offer and what's her message? Plus, inflation fears rise again as the Labor Department releases its latest numbers that show prices, especially in key areas, are still on the rise. It looks like the Federal Reserve might still have some work to do. Welcome to Potomac Watch. I'm Kim Strassel here with two of my esteemed colleagues, Alicia Finley and Barton Swain. So Nikki Haley is running. She served two terms as a governor of South Carolina, was largely loved there, served two years as United Nations ambassador under Donald Trump himself. She initially said she wouldn't get into the race if Donald Trump was running again, but she started to backtrack on that even before Trump announced in November, and now it's official. She made her announcement on Tuesday in a video, and let's just listen to a bit of that. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal, but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. So Barton, you are a proud South Carolinian. You've watched Haley up close for a while. What do you think are her strengths and her weaknesses? What does she bring to this race? Yeah, I've followed her since she was a member of the South Carolina House, actually, going back a long way. She has some strengths, there's no doubt about it. She's an Indian American from a poor rural part of South Carolina, Bamberg, which makes her sort of an interesting political persona. She's been the governor. She was a popular governor for six years. She has foreign policy experience of a kind as UN ambassador. That's a pretty good array of a resume. And she knows how to give a speech. I would say that her speeches are typically lacking in depth, but still, if there's one thing she knows how to do, it's light up a room full of Republican donors and voters. And these are significant strengths and uh, I'm not at all surprised that she has gone back on her vow and intends to run. She's very ambitious. I think she has some weaknesses, starting with the fact that, as I said, her speeches and just her whole approach to governing tends to lack full knowledge of policy details. When she was governor, it was pretty clear to me that she hadn't mastered the details of even some of her signature issues which in her case were like ethics reform and government restructuring. Those were the big ones. She signed a couple of big bills on those topics, but by the time they were signed, they changed very little. And I think people in South Carolina hardly remember them at all. I would say another problem area is she hasn't made a lot of friends in the places she's worked. If you read the memoirs of like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, you would fairly conclude that there is a tendency there on her part to wing it when it comes to important issues. And the fact that she ducked out after a couple of years didn't sit well with a lot of people who worked with her. One thing that really jumps out to me when I watch her 
picture is she is unrelentingly optimistic, which is a big contrast with Donald Trump, who has the fight, but he can be a pretty angry campaigner when he wants to be. She is a big favorite with donors because of her steadiness. They like that. You know, when she gave her video announcement, she kind of stressed these large themes of belief in America as a place that does good. She actually had a little bit of imagery of the 1619 campaign there, letting it be known that she rejects the left's woke agenda. She's got those foreign policy chops, as you said, which is always something that's key in a candidate. But I have to tell you, Martin, that like what thing that struck me is it felt a little generic, meaning well, you could imagine any single Republican candidate making these same claims. So I guess one of my questions, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on this, is what's her kind of overall rationale? Why her? rather than somebody else when she's speaking to voters are we getting anything that explains yet if we've still got a long way to go but yet why she should be the one right well that's the unanswerable question and not to be unfair about it but i think that was also true when she was governor of south carolina she was in a four-way primary in 2009 and was not likely to win sarah palin who was very popular among republicans at the time came in, endorsed her, she shot to the top and sort of won surprisingly. But it was not clear then, nor was it ever clear, what her distinctive policy goals were going to be. She put a lot of emphasis on sort of economic development stuff, which turned out to be sort of handing out tax favors to companies to come settle in South Carolina. That's a fair thing to invest your political capital in, but that was about it. And I don't see any distinctive theme in her pronouncements so far about the presidency. That video that we're talking about was, you know, fiscal responsibility. America is good. Russia and China are threats. Well, okay. You know, if you compare that to somebody like Ron DeSantis, who's likely going to be a candidate, he has a distinctive set of policy aims that he emphasizes. Even Donald Trump does. I mean, in his announcements, uh, largely cribbed from Ron DeSantis, ironically. But, you know, they have actual things that they're talking about. I do not know what she's going to talk about. It's a mystery to me, and I eagerly await finding out what those things are going to be. Yeah, she's going to need it. Because, look, one thing I think that is notable about her announcement is it signals that we are going to have a number of people in the field. I think she'll just be the first. And you're going to have these large discussions in that field about the philosophy, the debate, the rationale. Now, tactically, I think she's been very smart here in that, Look, one of the reasons undoubtedly she is announced fairly early by comparison to when some candidates announce is that she's already got one likely rival, which is Senator Tim Scott, also from South Carolina. So she's moving to try to sew up some endorsements and moving to try to shore up some donations there. You know, she knows that she has a potential advantage in that South Carolina is an early voting state in the primary. She's also making it clear tactically that she's ready for Donald Trump. This really stuck out at me. Her video announcement never mentioned it by name, but she did get in at least one shot. She noted that it was time for, quote, generational change, which is clearly an appeal to voters who feel some anxiety over President Biden's age and the fact that Trump will be 78 at the time of the election. She herself is just 51. Another not so subtle line in that video speech, letting everyone know that she's not scared of going head to head with Trump, who obviously doesn't have much of a reputation for restraint in his own campaigning. She said, you should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. It was notable. A lot of headlines pointed out that she managed to get through an entire 
entire first day of her announcement without getting slapped by Donald Trump with one of his nicknames. But Alicia, somehow I am doubtful that this is going to last. You did see one of Donald Trump's outside organizations issue a harsher statement saying that Haley had left her post at the UN to go rake in money at corporate boards. So I think this whole race is going to be a little bit of a sidewinder. What kind of dynamic, Alicia, do you think we're going to expect here, especially as the field potentially grows a little more? Well, I think she's actually going to actually get a pass on some of this stuff for a while because I think DeSantis is going to be the front runner to challenge Trump for the nomination. So I think there's going to be less attention paid for some of these other candidates like Nikki Haley and potentially, you know, Mike Pence. Mike Pompeo and others that are now looking to get into the race. So if she starts to actually get some steam and starts to maybe pick off some donors from perhaps DeSantis, maybe there's going to be a little more attention paid to her and her record in South Carolina. And she'll actually have to talk a little bit more in depth about policy. Actually, in a way, her candidacy, she reminds me very much of Marco Rubio, that upbeat or more cheery a message. The Reaganite, you know, morning in America and her line is, it's a great day. And so I think that that has a certain appeal, especially because DeSantis can come off as a little dour. And if DeSantis stumbles, you know, maybe she could actually get some legs. But I think right now it's really actually is a matter of if DeSantis stumbles, because I think he's right now, based on all the polls, the clear favorite in the race to beat Trump in the primary and to take on Biden. On that point about Haley's record, I think that's right. She is going to have to defend it. And the other thing I would just point out is that, yes, she was a popular governor, but the governor of South Carolina has very little power. The legislature has the real power. And in Haley's case, she did butt heads with the legislature on a couple of high profile issues, but the legislature won. What she got passed was not significant and defending that's gonna be difficult. Her popularity, I would say, was a result of the fact that South Carolina is a solidly red state. And I would be very very careful about concluding from that popularity that she showed any great leadership on particular issues. The evidence, in my view, just isn't there. Let me go on record as saying that I am happy that she at least did get in. There has been an unrelenting pressure, I think, on a lot of these potential candidates to clear the field and let this simply be a Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump fight. And I think that's a real potential disservice to voters because there's a lot of talented, younger, generational, conservative politicians at the moment. All of them have potentially something to add. And this signals the starting gun. So that to me is a bit exciting and I'm looking forward to the debate. We're gonna take a break now. When we come back, the inflation numbers are proving stubborn. What does it mean for the economy and what does the Fed do next? ADP knows anything you hear. Anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Kim Strassel here with Barton Swaim and Alicia Finley. The latest round of inflation numbers have a lot of folks, shall we say, concerned. Inflation has certainly slowed from its 2022 peak, but Tuesday data nonetheless showed that the consumer price index climbed 6.4% in January compared to a year earlier, faster than had been forecast, and only slightly less than the 6.5% in December. 
That's still about three times faster than the Fed would like to see. Its target is about 2%. And more importantly, prices really continued to rage in a number of key areas. And backing that up, we got some pretty strong retail sales numbers today. Alicia, can you walk us through what this latest round of data means? Sure. So I think there's actually a lot of people are debating on what this data means and trying to take into the context of what were the economic data that has been coming in in recent months, which can be a little noisy. For instance, you know, last month's job report showed pretty strong job growth. Today, we have pretty strong retail growth in terms of sales. But in December, we actually saw a big decline in retail sales, which led a lot of people to believe that the economy was slowing down. But the more recent signals that we're getting now is that, you know, the economy, the job market are still pretty strong. Retail sales are going strong, which will continue to push up demand for services and goods and contribute to, you know, increasing prices. And we're seeing this in the latest inflation report that the inflation is starting to slow down. As you said, it's about 6.4% over the year. And that's mainly the top line number. And a lot of that has been because, you know, energy prices have started to decline. But if you look down into drill down, you actually see that the food prices again are rising pretty fast, 0.5% just in, in January. There really hasn't been much slowdown there, maybe a little bit since over the summer. Services, shelter in particular, the rents are still rising at a pretty fast rate. I mean, there's a debate whether, you know, the measure that the BLS uses to calculate the shelter index is actually has a lag. And so we're actually seeing some rent prices fall in many regions and the report doesn't take that into account. But what I also consider very dismaying is we're actually seeing still pretty strong increases in other services and goods. And these were, I mean, used car prices have started to fall, but a lot of other goods, prices like uh, clothing, medical care commodities, and those kinds of things are continuing to rise. And we were actually expecting that to fall and you know maybe services would continue to increase mid-wage pressures and as the pandemic has eased more people are going out you know traveling you know the demand has increased for restaurants hotels and all that and so maybe there would be you know continued upward pressure in the service index but we're also continuing to see that in the goods index is so I think the it shows that the Fed still has a long ways to go to you know bring inflation down yeah I agree with you on that I think if there was one clear message that came out of an otherwise very muddy report it's that we are not there yet and the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve is going to have to continue to take actions I think the market finally took that on board perhaps a little bit this week because they certainly didn't respond very happily to these numbers. You know, I just want to drill down a little bit into a couple of the areas that you mentioned, Alicia, because, you know, we tend to talk about these things clinically, but they really do highlight that this inflation that we're seeing now has been really painful for consumers in a number of ways. You know, you mentioned the grocery bill. That number is quite astonishing. Even as overall U.S. prices fell slightly, as we noted, grocery prices, what people buy at retailers to take home and prepare their meals, jump 11.3% in January from a year earlier. And by the way, if you've been to a grocery store, you would know this, especially if you are like me, you have a teenage son who has the ability to empty the refrigerator on a daily basis. And that's really hit families hard. But the other one, Barton, is home prices. You know, as Federal Reserve does raise interest rates, that's obviously fed into mortgage costs, rental costs. Home prices were up 6.9% in December for the year. And I think that broad number kind of really 
doesn't do justice to what that means to average Americans, you know, their inability to sell a house that they need to move, the trouble for younger people trying to get into the market. Now, Martin, what are we seeing out there in terms of housing and some of these household good prices in particular? I think housing is a huge part of what's driving this. And if I could just sort of look at this from 30,000 feet, the pandemic taught a lot of companies and a lot of individuals that they could work from home. And when people are all working at home, they naturally want to make really expensive improvements. A lot of them, they want to move into bigger homes. That's going to drive up prices. And that's okay for a certain segment of the economy that can live a little more comfortably. It's not so okay for people in the middle and lower income levels who need to find better housing situations for whatever reason, a better school district or safer neighborhood, whatever. When prices go up, they go up for everybody. People in the middle are feeling that. At the same time, what we haven't seen in the last several quarters is much in the way of wage growth. There's some, as you would expect, workers are putting pressure on employers to raise their pay to cope with inflation. But wages aren't keeping up anywhere near keeping up with inflation when it's at six and a half percent or whatever. And in my view, this is a long reverberation of the shutdowns of 2020 2021 when government shuts down the economy and tries to keep it going with lots of borrowed cash the effects are going to last well past the crisis itself yeah you know and that gets us back to the fed alicia you know for me as we just talked about it would seem that this report would be very strong indication that the fed really needs to keep its foot on the gas here for a while and get some of this under control that being said there's been an interesting debate that's been breaking out including on our own pages is the role of the money supply and in inflation some of our own contributors predicted that the huge increase in the money supply which is shorthand known as m2 in 2020 would lead to higher prices albeit with a lag now that we're seeing this sharp contraction in the money supply they're arguing that we are soon going to see a sharp bout of disinflation and they're now beginning to worry about a recession this is kind of adding to the pressure for jerome powell to pull back a little bit you know, we at the page over the years have lost a little bit of our confidence in the M2 as a reliable inflation predictor. Alicia, what are your own views on that? How should people sort through this in their head? I think there is a lot of uncertainty. That's why the Fed has actually slowed its increases in interest rates and is not likely to raise them as much as many expected last year. I mean, many people are expecting the ultimate terminal rate, which is the term that's used to describe the basically end point or how high the Fed is going to eventually have to raise interest rates to keep them or to keep inflation and reduce inflation down to 2%. And many people are expecting that to, you know, range from about 5.1 to maybe 5.6, though some, you know, are actually thinking maybe it has to be 6%. And I guess it really depends on how you read that M2. Well, yes, you know, the growth in the money supply slowed and started to decline. But I think there is a case that, you know, we saw in the last decade that, you know, M2 really didn't predict inflation all that well. And there's still a lot of the money supply is still very large. People still have a lot of savings that will continue to flow into the economy. We really aren't seeing as much of a slowdown and as the Fed has expected from the interest rate increases, the Fed seems to think, you know, there's a, the Phillips curve, that there's a balance and there's a, an offset between inflation and unemployment. And, you know, inflation still continued to rage. Unemployment really hasn't increased. In fact, you know, the jobs report, as we mentioned earlier, was really quite strong. And, you know, the job openings are actually, you know, grew last month by around 500,000. 
2000. So I think part of the debate is really a philosophical debate about monetary policy, but part is just actually how do you read and interpret these conflicting signals. And I think that that's going to be a continued debate that we have over the next few months. The Fed has basically kind of taken over as in seen its job as, you know, stimulating the economy. And I think that that was a mistake, especially with the problem was the pandemic shutdowns and the virus itself. It wasn't a problem of monetary policy. So I think the results that we're seeing is that inflation is continuing to grow, even if it's starting to slow down a little bit. And what happens, you know, in the next few months, I think the Fed just has a hard time, will have a hard time over the next few months, and we'll probably get a little more clearer view of what's going on with more economic reports, more jobs reports coming in. I would expect the jobs to increases to slow down and maybe in a few months, you know, they may actually see declines. So it's possible that we have a recession, you know, later this year. But right now, I think there actually isn't much evidence that that's going to happen. Yeah, all of which brings me to the thing for which I am grateful every day that I am not Jay Powell. Anyway, I want to thank you, Barton. Thank you, Alicia. Thank all of our listeners. I want to remind them that we we are here every day. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. And if you like the show, please do hit that subscribe button. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.